everyone, and welcome to Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And uh, how you been, Trish? Pretty good. How's your week? Busy. Hot. Here in Pennsylvania right now, it's, it's, it's hot. Yeah, just sweating it out. Pretty much. <laughs> I've had a really good week because it, it was my last week at my current, well, not so current job anymore. And I love the last week because once people find out that you're leaving, it's a lot of like affirmation and compliments because nobody's going to be like, well, you really weren't that great at your job. <laughs> We're glad to see you're leaving. We're glad to see you're leaving. No, right. everybody's so positive and giving you oh, compliments. And yeah. You're, you're such a great person. And so that was nice. It gave me a lot of self-confidence uh-huh. to end the week. That's nice. And you start your new job next week. Yes, Tuesday. So what do you have for us this week, Maddie? So today we're going to be talking about the murder of Terry and Lucy Smith. So this occurred in 2001 and this happened in Pennsylvania. And I don't think that it's a very well-known case. And it was kind of difficult to get a whole lot of information on it. But luckily, as I found in researching these cases, a lot of the best stuff you get from like the appeals yes. that the convicted mm-hmm. submit. So I was able to pull a lot of information from there. So I'm hoping that we've got enough to really paint the picture here. So this is our second case from Pennsylvania. We're coming out like this is a hotbed of murder here in Pennsylvania, <laughs> which we aren't. I just read an article of the, I guess, top 10 states for murder, and we're not even on it. That's amazing. So, what, do you remember what number one was? I think it was Florida. Alaska. Alaska? Really? I was surprised by that because I was like, really? But yeah, Florida was on there. California was on there. They were up there. But I think Wisconsin was on there. So even though the, we've done two cases back to back with Pennsylvania, it is not a murderous a hot state. Bed murder. <laughs> a hotbed no. of murder compared to other states in our country. So I'm going to start off by kind of introducing you to some characters in this story. The first being Mama D, Drina Mama D Rodriguez. She at this time in 2001 is 34 years old and is the mother of four children. And there's it's hard to get a lot of information on her. But at this point, Her daughters are like teenage, at least two of her daughters are teenage, so they're more in that range. And she has what some would call a flop house. Have you ever heard of this word? I've heard of it. I've heard of trap house. That's like a drug house. But is flop house more of like where everybody just comes to hang out and do illegal activities or it's just it's a hangout? So it's more along trap house like that line. Apparently her speciality was to have an in and out policy for teenagers to come and drink and do drugs. And she would supply drugs and alcohol for these teenagers that would hang out at her place. Wonderful person. I really think that it was like a heart of gold situation. I'm not thinking so much. (laughs) That was sarcastic. Okay. Living in this house at this time is someone named Landon May. So I'm going to give sort of his mini bios. When he was about six months old, his father was arrested and jailed for attacking two girls. So they were 15 and 18 in the woods. And he stabbed both of them and raped one of them and then just left them there to die. He's not getting the Father of the Year award. No, he's not. So then he was arrested for that and convicted and got the death penalty for it. And because, I mean, obviously... Landon at this point was six months old. He never knew his father and his mom actually like sheltered him from all of this. So he never knew 
really who his father was, what had happened, any of it. By age five, his mom had remarried, they had moved, and his mom was even hiding Landon from his father's family. So his father's family was trying to like track him down and find him, and she was keeping them hidden that well that they just couldn't. And they had never, again, told him what was going on, but he continues to show signs of depression, anxiety, aggression. And by five years old, it's to the point where they're starting to see psychologists already, and it's just getting worse and worse. And his stepfather, by all accounts, his stepfather was a pretty good guy, like nothing really out of the ordinary with him. He was Mm -hmm. just trying to handle this situation. By the age of probably like 12, 13, he's in and out of inpatient units. He's being heavily medicated, just all of this going on. And at one point, his stepfather blurts out to him, quote, you're going to be just like your father, a killer in prison. And he had no clue his dad was in prison. No, he didn't know okay. who his father was, like had no idea. And his mom went to his psychologist and was like, so how do you think I should deal with this? The psychologist answer was, well, you should probably come clean about who his father actually is. His mother felt the best way to do that was to pull out all the newspaper clippings from what had happened and just lay them out on the table and say, look, here's daddy. The intention was good the delivery not so much no, like newspaper clippings this is more of a personal conversation than that at this point he starts becoming obsessed with bad blood and he's convinced that because his father was this way that he is going to be this way and by 17 he moves out of his mom's house and is kind of just living from place to place job to job just kind of roaming around at this point he's in his early 20s i believe when he meets mama d And starts living there. And he also meets Michael Bourgeois. Great last name. I don't think he was all that bougie, but his last name (laughs) was. But his last name was. (laughs) Michael was adopted when he was one year old. And he lived in Kansas with a family, mother, father, and they had four daughters. And Michael was the youngest. Apparently, from what his sisters say now, it wasn't a very happy home. And the parents fought a lot. And there was just a lot of back and forth with that. And the parents ended up getting divorced when Michael was 15. Around that time, it was hard to get an actual date, but around the time that he's 15. At this time, too, his mom remarries and actually moves them to PA. So he grew up in Kansas with his family. And from what I'm understanding, his sisters were all over 18 at this point. So that's why he was the only one to move to PA with her. Okay, so from Kansas to Pennsylvania as a late teen. Yes, Parents are divorced. Mom's remarried. He didn't take it well. I was ready to say, difficult transition ahead. Yeah, he did not transition well. Apparently, it was very difficult for him to make friends. He just couldn't fit in. He was against his mom for having moved, and it was just kind of a volatile situation. So he starts dating one of Mama D's daughters. And because he was having so much trouble coping, his mom was kind of pushing him to move back to Kansas with his dad because I think just thinking that maybe that would be a better situation to get him back to his friends and to his normal life. And somewhere in the mix, he breaks up with Mama D's daughter and starts dating Mama D. How old was Mama D? Mama D was 34. And he's 17. 17. Yes. The daughter was okay with him dating her mom? Well, they're all living in the same house at this point, so... I just have a look of disgust on my face all the time you're talking. I'm like, oh. Just every part of the story just goes... It's like watching a slow-moving train. It's like, oh. That's about to hit a whole fleet of cows. Right. that's, That's what we're looking at here. We've kind of set the scene here. They're all sort of living in this flop house. There's drugs, alcohol. Mama D's kind of running the show here. But this is what the scene looks like. 
So on August 30th, 2001, Rodriguez, May, and Bourgeois, along with two others that are friends, Stephen and Navarro, rob Ephrata Auto, stealing a 95 Pathfinder. At this point, they all decide to swear a blood oath to never tell the police. They actually swap blood? Yes. Like, cut your hand, hold hands. On September 1st, the next day, they use those stolen cars to burglarize the home of Lloyd and Beverly Good, and they're away for Labor Day vacation, so they're not in the home when this happens. And they steal, you know, some money, some goods, and they leave, but they decide that, well, we're probably going to come back the next day and steal some more from this same house. So they go back to Ephrata Auto and steal two more cars. You think Ephrata Auto would have stepped up security after the first step? Yeah, no, they didn't. It's just, and this whole thing, like, you get that these are not the most intellectually apt people. And it's just kind of convoluted the way that they're thinking through these situations. Right. Like we stole one car. Let's go back to the same place and steal two more. Did they swap more blood at this point? (laughs) Each crime, they just have to get more and more more blood blood from each other. So they go back to the goods on September 2nd. So the next day, and they steal more items. This time they go for firearms ammunition a stuffed fox it's like one of those games like what doesn't belong (laughs) so you have (laughs) the firearm the bullets for the firearm and a stuffed fox yeah and then they also steal the goods two vehicles that they have so at this point we're at five cars stolen now throughout this time they're like dropping the cars off in different places too so they're not just holding on to all these vehicles from what i can tell but they're like dropping them and torching them places and then just switching out with more stolen cars. That same day, they committed armed robbery at a Turkey Hill and they walked away with a whopping $234. Now, for those of you outside of the Pennsylvania area, I don't know of Turkey Hill convenience stores. So like a Wawa, a Sheet. I don't know what else is across. I know there's all different ones across like the a country. Sunoco. Oh, Sunoco, a Rudders. That, it's along that line. So on September 3rd, so we're now on day four of our crime spree, the goods return home and they report the burglary because they obviously see right away that it's been Cars are gone, fox is gone, guns are gone, bullets are gone, (laughs) but more importantly, the fox is gone. The fox, red alert. The police come and they are able to get fingerprints and they later that day stop Stephen, one of the friends, in one of the goods cars so they pull him over because obviously he's driving a stolen vehicle and they arrest him september 5th the police had processed those fingerprints so we started on august 30th so we're now through the labor day weekend into the next weeks from the good burglary they had processed the fingerprints and they found that they belonged to michael who again is the adopted son from kansas from kansas yes so they go to lucy and terry smith who is his parents, to find him because that's still listed as his address. They go to question to, to see why are your fingerprints and where's the fox is really what looking to find out. That night, after the police come and, and question Terry and Lucy, which they pretty much say, Michael's not here, we don't know where he is, all this, but they knew he was living at Mama D's. So that night they go over to Mama D's to talk to Michael and say, you know, hey, the police are looking for you, what's going on? And apparently in this conversation, they're pushing him even more to go back to Kansas. So they didn't tell the police where Michael was. They didn't say, well, he moved out. He's with Mama D. Nothing. They decided to take that on for themselves. Yes. To try to track him down. Anyway, they went over to visit with him. And again, they were trying to pushing him to move back to Kansas because that's where they thought that he would be best off. So apparently throughout those past few days, Michael had talked about killing the Smiths 
because of them pushing him to go back to Kansas. And apparently he was just not happy with that. And he felt the best solution for your parents telling you what to do is to kill them. At first, his friends thought he was crazy or joking. They were like, what are you talking about? But then as the days go on and the crime spree continues, it starts to spiral and turn into a more solidified idea that, you know, maybe this is the best route. So after that meeting, after they come and talk to Michael, he pretty much says, I'm ready to kill them. Like, I'm ready I think we're at that point. And this whole time, apparently, Rodriguez, who's Mama D, is kind of pushing the idea because apparently she's saying, well, we need that money because if they've got Steven arrested, if we can't bail him out, then he's going to talk and he's going to give all of us up. So we've got to put up bail now to get him out of there as soon as possible. Mama D gives Landon, May, and Michael Bourgeois money for gloves and duct tape, as well as two guns. And I believe that these were guns that had been stolen from the Goods' home. They break in through a second-story window into Terry and Lucy Smith's home, and they hold the couple at gunpoint. They force Terry to tape Lucy, and then they move Terry into another bedroom. They forced him to give up the bank info, and then they shot and stabbed him. They came back to Lucy, who was in this first bedroom, and she at this point had crawled into the bathroom with a phone and was trying to call the police, and this just riled them up even more. So they came and forced her to lie on the bed, and she was pleading with them just to let her live, and they shoot her, but she doesn't die. They cut her throat, and she kept pleading. She just keeps on trying to get them to stop this attack and at one point she stood and michael hit her over the head with a claw hammer this is her son doing this he knocked her onto the floor where they start to kick and attack her and eventually drop a tv on her head and smother her to death yeah i mean this is a brutal brutal attack all in all terry was stabbed a total of 47 times with his throat slit and shot five times and then strangled Lucy was cut 51 times, shot in the head, beaten, and suffered blunt force trauma. So the next morning around 10 a.m., the police receive a call from one of Terry's employees because neither he nor Lucy have come into work. And they didn't work in the same place, but she was sort of checking up. He, she was at Terry's workplace and had called Lucy's workplace as well, mm-hmm. trying to track them down, basically. And at 10.30, they arrive and they try to knock on the door but there's no answer. And they check in the station. And when the police hear that yesterday they had been there interviewing about the good robbery or a few days prior, they immediately call in for backup because they realize this may be something bigger. So they enter through an open back door and they find Lucy wrapped in a comforter in the master bedroom and Terry in the front bedroom also wrapped up in bedding. Later that morning, they show up at the Rodriguez. So Mama D is asking to talk to Michael just about the good burglary. So they're not even at this point mentioning the murders or that his parents are killed. And he admits that he was involved, he's arrested, and he's taken to the station. So at this point, they're just standing on the porch and the police are asking Mama D questions about the burglary in general and about Michael. And Landon May comes down the stairs and she introduces him. The police ask to interview him about the burglary. And once at the station, he admits involvement in the burglary. They really are folding like a house of cards. They're teenagers, and that's the thing. It's they're, they're teenagers, and as we'll see, the, the big theory here is that Mama D was kind of orchestrating all of this and manipulating and controlling them. 
once he's admitted involvement for the burglaries, it's only at that point that they ask about the Smith's murder and he asks for a lawyer right away. Later on, when he's officially arrested for the burglary, he then admits that he was part of the murder and names Bourgeois. He also gives them the location of the stolen goods and the clothes that he was wearing at the time of the murder. They get the warrant and they retrieve everything from Mama D's house because that's where they've hidden everything, except for the guns. The guns are found in the following weeks because Mama D had convinced her daughters and her daughter's boyfriends to hide the guns in dumpsters. I think one was in a dumpster and one was in another location, but the police got to them. They folded and they found the guns as well. Now, did the police find out about this because the teen daughters and the boyfriends came forward, like admitted where these guns were? No, I think it was in questioning them. Okay. So once they realized, because once they found all of this in Mama D's house and based on the information from Michael and Landon they could tie her to the crime when they did that they were also able to question her daughters and I think that once they saw that this was getting serious and that she was actually being arrested for this and charged with it that's when they gave up other information the outcome of this is Landon May has two death sentences and this was the first time because remember his father is on death row at this point. This is the first time that a father and son were on death row at the same time for two different crimes. Not something to be proud of. No, it's not. But isn't it crazy? I think that part of the the interesting piece of this case for me is that I think Landon convinced himself that he was going to be a murderer. Right. Because my dad's a murderer, I'm his son, I'm a bad seed, yeah. bad blood, and so this is my, my course in life. Even though plenty of people have parents that have done horrible things, and they don't go down that path. So children of murderers, we want to hear from you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, we no, we don't. <laughs> Thank you for listening, but no, we don't. <laughs> and then Michael, he was pleading not guilty, but then when Landon got the death penalty, he decided that, oh, maybe I should just plead guilty. So he did, and he had two life sentences, but he was a minor at the time, and he was 17, and at this uh, Supreme Court has now determined that a minor cannot be sentenced to life. That's the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. That just right. came out last year that anybody who was convicted as a minor and given life sentences, that could no longer be the case. And actually, we're going to be discussing some cases coming up here in Pennsylvania that that's happened too. And we're going to be discussing too one of my Florida cases with minors that are involved where a similar situation pops up. There's a death penalty in that mix too. Okay. But yeah, where it's a similar situation. So he was resentenced to 80 years and he will be 97 when he can apply for parole. And then Mama Deese, she requested a bench trial because she was trying to avoid the death penalty. Can you not be given the death penalty in a bench trial? I'm not sure. We'll have to do some research into that. I don't think you can because I don't think that you can have one so judge that decides verdict and gives you a death sentence. I don't know. I think we'll have to what, look that up. I think up. that was her goal was to say, okay. I'm going to go bench trial because then I won't get the death penalty, basically. Right. I'm going to let a judge just hear the information and not 12 of my peers. Yes. Okay. We'll look that up and we'll get back. Anyway, she was convicted of first degree murder and other charges and is currently facing life in prison. She is appealing and is trying to get out of this saying, well, I didn't commit a murder, but Again, based on the evidence that they have, she was orchestrating this crime spree. She was pushing them to do this, saying, we need the money. You need to do this. And again, she was in a relationship with Michael at this point. And were drugs, did they ever talk about, because this was a flop slash trap house slash drug house, were drugs involved? Like, was she giving drugs to these minors? 
that they again easily influence. Yeah, she, I don't. I'm not sure exactly. And again, because this, I think, because this was like the murders happened and it was solved so quickly. There's not a whole lot of like mm-hmm. news coverage and articles about it. But based on the information that I could find, I'm not sure what drugs were being given to them. But yes, they were giving drugs, and it wasn't just pot. It was like right, and that's another <laughs> manipulative tool though, because if you're right. hooked on other drugs besides marijuana, but if they're harder drugs and there's an addiction there and the person that's giving you those drugs is saying, well, I'm cutting you off, you're going to do what you have to do to get those drugs. Well, and even beyond that, I mean, look at the kids that were living in our house. So you've got Michael who feels lost and is just looking for someone to kind of hold on to who doesn't have parents around. So she's taking on this mother role role. as a mother role and also having a sexual relationship with him. And then you have, Landon too who who feels probably like he's been lied to his whole life and then now he's a bad blood and is kind of looking to act out on that as well mm-hmm. he's at this point I think looking for an escalation into you know violent yeah. crimes like a self-fulfilling prophecy yes like I'm bad I come from bad blood therefore I'm bad and I just need something to prove that I'm bad yes It was an interesting case. And then I started because you're adopted and it started to go into articles about the percentages of adopted children that kill their adoptive parents. Please tell me it's low. It's higher than those that are not adopted. I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's a little bit higher. I can honestly say I am one that has not. (laughs) And my husband's also adopted and he has not. So, (laughs) well, that's disheartening. Adopted kids apparently kill their parents more often than non-adopted kids all right so (laughs) we don't want the life lesson to be don't adopt children (laughs) that should not be the criminal discourse life tip it's not please adopt it's not that high no what is not that high you just told me it's higher than normal (laughs) well yeah but the normal is i mean it's not like one in five it's lower than that (laughs) forget what the percentage i'm editing all this out so Thank you all so much for listening and tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, please think about joining our Facebook group. You can find us at Criminal Discourse Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Give us some feedback. Give us a shout out. If there's a case you'd like us to cover, please let us know and we'll see what we can do about that. Now we're also on Twitter. Yes, Twitter, Instagram, but please make sure I think most important right now is subscribing and giving us ratings on wherever you get your podcast iTunes Google Play just let us know you're listening yeah give us a five-star review and download us all right well thanks again for tuning in we're going to be back later this week with another episode because we're on fire and so we hope you tune in then so please have a great week be safe but also be kind